Hi there. You're listening to the Hellenistic Age Podcast, Episode 44, Hellenistic Philosophy, Epicurus and Epicureanism. In 323 BC, Aristotle, the last member of the quote-unquote holy trinity of classical Greek philosophers, which includes Socrates and Plato, would die shortly after the death of his greatest pupil, Alexander the Great. In some respects, this is the end of what is typically thought of as Greek philosophy. The Platonic and Aristotelian schools continue to dominate much of our framework, and in some sense this is understandable, given that the philosophies that emerged during the Hellenistic period did not surpass their predecessors in popularity, nor did they outlast them. Whatever did manage to make it into the public's perception is either limited to misinterpretations, entertaining if vulgar anecdotes, of a certain cynic, or a surface-level understanding adopted by MBA graduates in Silicon Valley. Yet, the emergence of the Hellenistic world came with it a burst of new and sometimes radical schools and ideas in response to the rapidly changing world around them. Trying to create an approximate outline of how to deal with the various philosophical schools was a bit of a challenge. Entire university courses could be taught on the various aspects of each school's belief structure, from epistemology to ethics and metaphysics, and frankly, that is beyond the scope of this show. Above all else, I am running a history-based podcast, but to only focus on the historical background of each group would be a great disservice to you. Sure, the often graphic stories of Diogenes are wildly entertaining, but the doctrines of the Stoic, Epicurean, and Skeptic philosophers played an important role in facilitating the great scientific achievements of the Hellenistic period and have far-reaching influence in not only the Western philosophical tradition, as it is generally called, but also the later theology of world religions like Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Therefore, what I plan to do is organize each episode by philosophical school, going over their historical origins and their overall belief structure so as to get a reasonable grasp of what each group is about before discussing their impact and legacy. With all this in mind, I hope you enjoy our tour of Hellenistic philosophy. As a reminder, I am celebrating two years of the Hellenistic Age podcast by making episode 50 a Q&A special. You can ask me any questions you want answered, whether it relates to the Hellenistic period, history in general, or personal opinions, like what my favorite movies are, or if I think pineapple is an acceptable piece of topping. It really isn't. They can be sent through any of my social media accounts, my website's contact page, or my email at hellenisticagepodcast at gmail.com. You still have plenty of time to send them in, so I look forward to reading them soon. Anyways, back to the show. Let us begin our journey by heading to Athens in the late 4th century B.C., It was no longer the premier political power of the Greek world since the heyday of Pericles over a century before, but without a doubt it was the heart of the philosophical movements of the time. Of course, you have the schools of the greatest of the classical philosophers, the Academy of Plato and the Lyceum of Aristotle. And by this period there was a flourishing of new ideas and philosophies that would spread across the Hellenistic and later Roman worlds. The first of these would require us to visit a most unorthodox type of school, if you could even call it that. Located just outside of the city walls was a complex, simply referred to as the Garden. The Garden, as its name implies, was a residency with a prominent botanical display that feels more like a commune than an educational center, belonging to a man named Epicurus. 
Epicurus was the father of what came to be known as Epicureanism, who can guess? A philosophy that gained traction during the early Hellenistic period that was decidedly alien to the ideals of the educated Greek nobleman. Though he was originally born on the island of Samos in 341 BC, he was an Athenian citizen and member of a respectable family that was compelled to move off the island following the exile's decree enforced by Perdiccas in 322. Sometime during his teenage years, Epicurus was being instructed by a tutor about the origins of the cosmos, gleamed from the poet Hesiod's Theogony, and one set of lines particularly vexed the young lad. Quote, Tell me these things, Olympian muses. Tell me from the beginning which first came to be. Chaos was first of all, but next appears broad-bosomed earth, sure-standing place of all the gods who live on snowy Olympus's peak. End quote. Epicurus found the line, chaos was first of all, to be confusing, but the tutor could not provide a suitable enough answer to sate the boy's curiosity. This is when he first started to practice philosophy, supplementing his income with a job as a school teacher in the city of Colophon in Asia Minor, and by his early 30s he had begun to amass a bit of a following based on his teachings, dedicated to better understanding the universe and how to live the best life. In 306, Epicurus arrived in Athens, where he would remain for the rest of his life. He purchased the property that would become known as the Garden, setting it up as his center of teaching for he and his followers to congregate. The lifestyle of the Garden was not like the lecturing of the Academy or Lyceum. There was no emphasis on lessons delivered in a rigid format, from all-knowing teacher to the student, and the term teacher and its implied hierarchical meaning was something anathema to Epicurus. No doubt he would applaud Charles Dickinson's critical imagery of a schoolmaster pouring gallons of facts into the vessel-like students. Instead, there was a flat hierarchy by which students interacted with the more learned figures of the community, known as the Cathagemones, or those who lead the way, who would act as the heads of the group to facilitate the personal growth and emulation of the said Cathagemones by the adepts through open dialogue and shared experience, rather than delivering lectures from a podium. To Epicurus and his followers, the ultimate goal of life is happiness or flourishing, achieved by embracing pleasure and avoiding all pain. From an initial impression, this seems like a simple call for hedonism, the pursuit of vices of food, drink, and the flesh in selfish indulgence. This assumption couldn't be farther from the truth, and in fact, the ideal Epicurean lifestyle was rather austere in principle. To Epicurus, pleasure is marked by absence of pain or turmoil which comes in two forms, of the body, aponia, and of the soul, or mind, ataraxia. Quote, For we do everything for the sake of being neither in pain nor in terror. As soon as we achieve this state, every storm in the soul is dispelled, since the animal is not in a position to go after some need, nor to seek something else to complete the good of the body and the soul. For we are in need of pleasure only when we are in pain, because of the absence of pleasure. And when we are not in pain, then we no longer need pleasure. End quote. This is not to imply that pleasure is limited to simply being free of pain. You are allowed to enjoy your personal luxuries, so long as they do not distract you, and they merely add to your pleasure if consumed, but don't cause distress if taken away. But Epicurus stresses that moderate living is something that should be promoted, and to actively seek out these luxuries is the wrong way to go about it. Rather, you should accept that these luxuries will come your way at some time, and embrace them if they do not cloud your judgment. 
Epicurus and his followers who resided at the garden often consumed simple and smaller amounts, drinking very watered-down wine or eating a bit of bread and figs. Some have openly argued that Epicurus was a vegetarian, but as far as I can tell, based upon looking into this topic, he never explicitly advocated against the consumption of meat as a matter of animal rights. But it is more likely that he consumed meat rarely since it was a luxury item for the time. Still, all evidence suggests he lived frugally, bragging that he could live on less than a bronze coin a day. It must also be noted that he was given donations by adherents and admirers, and the garden and surrounding property itself was worth something along 80 minas, which translates to about five years worth of wages for your average Athenian, something that could only be supported by Epicurus's wealthy background. Despite that, one of the first things Epicurus advocates as part of a balanced lifestyle is to abstain from the political life, normally out of the question for your ambitious young Greek or Roman nobleman, and totally against the notions of Plato and Aristotle, who determined that man is a political animal. In addition, he does not recommend getting married or having children, since it complicates the process of seeking the best life, no doubt taking a page out of Socrates' handbook of how to be a model husband and father. The unusual demands of the Epicurean lifestyle and the informality of its teachings meant that the circle of strict adherents always remained relatively small, the most famous of his students being Ermarchus and Metrodorus. But what is remarkable is that we have a surprisingly large amount of name members who were women. Batis, Mamarian, Themista, and at least five others were listed as students of the garden at various points. Epicurus's generosity was renowned, and so his followers were attracted by the group's relatively egalitarian acceptance of new members, including ex and current slaves. In 270, Epicurus died of kidney failure due to stones at the age of 71, facing his end by drawing a warm bath and drinking a draught of wine before calmly slipping away. His successor, Hermarchus, would continue running the garden and overseeing the disciples, and the teachings of Epicureanism would be popularized through the work of Metrodorus. Epicurus was partially deified upon his death, his followers celebrating his life by establishing a hero cult and dedicating monthly festivals to him. This is rather ironic given Epicurus's views on the divine and on death in general, but we will come to that in time. The spread of Epicureanism into the Hellenistic world was surprisingly successful, and outside of the garden there formed communities along Asia Minor and the Levant. Syria was a rather prominent hub, as the Epicurean philosopher and mathematician Philonides of Laodicea was very close with King Antiochus IV Epiphanes, and tutored the crown prince Demetrius II. As far as I can tell, either Antiochus IV was successfully converted, which seems like a near impossibility given the rule of no political offices nor children, or was at least sympathetic to the cause, despite Philonides' failure to convince him to commit. The garden itself came to an end during the sack of Athens by the Roman consul Lucius Cornelius Sulla in 86 BC, as Plutarch recounts how the commander ordered the groves surrounding the city to be cut down and be turned into lumber for his siege engines. From there, pocket communities continued to survive into the early Roman Empire. But, as we'll explain later in the episode, it just never caught on in popularity to the same degree as Stoicism did. The belief system remained very influential, however. And since we have covered enough of its historical background, let us turn to the doctrine itself and learn about the so-called Dance of Atoms.
The writings of Epicurus have not survived in their entirety, though we do have two letters that directly spell out his belief system, one centered around metaphysics and the other on his ethics. These were preserved in the biography written by Diogenes Laertius, who operated in the early 3rd century AD, and later philosophically-minded authors like Cicero and Sextus Empiricus give us summations of Epicurean philosophy, though it's usually from a perspective arguing against Epicureanism. However, one of the most crucial pieces that has allowed for the doctrine of Epicurus to be better understood comes not from a Greek philosopher nor an academic, but rather a Roman poet. Titus Lucretius Carus, simply known as Lucretius, was a Roman citizen of the early 1st century BC, a friend of a friend of Cicero who had devoted himself to the Epicurean school. The teachings of Epicurus himself could be quite dry, so Lucretius dedicated a work often titled On the Nature of Things, where he could relay the arguments of Epicurean philosophy into a more palatable format, namely poetry. Lucretius likens himself and his poem in Curing the Human Spirit to a doctor treating a patient with a foul-tasting medicine. Quote, Consider a physician with a child who will not sip a disgusting dose of wormwood. First, he coats the goblet's lip all round with honey-sweet blonde stickiness, that way to lure gullible youth to taste it, and to drain the bitter cure. That's what I do. He continues, That is the purpose of my poetry as you peruse my lines, to try and keep your mind's attention while you start to understand the framework at the universe's heart." End quote. What might be an excellent place to start is epistemology, which seeks to understand how knowledge is formed or conceived. According to scholars like Jacques Brunschwig, the Hellenistic period is the great age of ancient epistemology, and Epicureanism is no exception. We'll talk more about epistemology when we come to Pyrrho and the skeptics, but Epicureanism is something that can be classified as a materialist or physicalist philosophy, which believes all things in the universe can be reduced to a physical confinement if they are to have an effect on said universe. Epicurus is very concerned about making sure that we are able to define what exactly we mean when we talk about truths and knowledge of said truths, using the metaphor of a measuring stick as a standard or canon from which we can proceed further. In the case of Epicureanism, the senses and perception are that measuring stick. The senses are something to be trusted. The mechanism by which we receive information through sight, sound, or touch will be explained in a little bit. And all things we are able to observe or able to infer based upon past observation are considered evident, and therefore we should believe them. In the case of things we have not observed and must exclusively infer upon, then that would be merely non-evident. This is very much against what Plato and rival Hellenistic schools argued, believing that our senses are fallible and cannot be taken too seriously as truthful, if at all. But before we can delve further into his epistemology, we need to look at the foundation from which all of Epicurus' doctrine relies upon, the theory of atoms. The catalyst that sparked Epicurus' desire to practice philosophy was the failure of his instructor to properly answer the question. If chaos arose first, what created chaos to begin with? Can something really arise from nothing? According to the Epicureans, no, this is not the case. Quote, nothing comes into being from what is not, for in that case everything would be coming into being from everything, with no need of seeds. End quote. Epicurus argues that the universe seems to operate certain laws when it comes to the generation of objects. If something indeed can come out of nothing, there is no reason to believe in consistency or predictability when it comes to the attributes of matter. 
Lucretius explains by further elaborating on the idea of seeds, using fruit as an example. Quote, For if things were created out of nothing, any breed could be born from any other. The same tree would not always grow the same fruit. What might bear an apple one time might the next produce a kince or a pear. End quote. But since we are able to observe reality and reasonably predict that apple trees will beget apples, that dogs will not randomly turn into cats, and so on and so forth, then there must always be something that is able to consistently contribute an essence, or seeds. The same is true with the destruction of objects as well. Since an object degrades over time, rather than instantaneously transforms into something else upon expiration. These seeds are in fact part of the Epicurean framework of the universe, which relies above all else on atoms and the atomic theory. This is a tradition stretching back to the pre-Socratic philosopher Democritus, who argued that matter, in any shape or form, is comprised of small, indivisible, and imperceptible particles. There are a number of important points to address though. First, atoms have a limited set of characteristics, their weight, their size, and their overall shape. And while he admits that the variety of atoms is nearly inconceivable, there is still a finite amount of unique atoms out there, whereas Democritus claims that there is an unlimited variety. Atoms have extreme limits, as they can only be so large, so hot, or so cold. Second, atoms are constantly moving throughout a void, though the better term would be falling, pulled down by their own weight. The void itself is the unoccupied space where bodies are not, and you cannot have an atom and the void occupy the same position. It is also essential for explaining locomotion, as the void is weightless and functionally infinite, and poses no resistance to the movement of the corporeal atom. By moving through this void, atoms, which are not necessarily identical, can come together to form compounds, which creates the visible bodies that form a person, a mountain, or an apple. A valid point can be raised though. If atoms are pulled down by their own gravity, wouldn't that mean they just fall endlessly in parallel lines and never come together in the first place? Lucretius, therefore, provides us with an additional concept, clinamen, or the swerve. An atom's ability to swerve and collide with other atoms enables the creation of compounds, but it also allows for the idea of free will, because the mind is able to affect the universe by dictating the body's actions and choices, since it itself is made of atoms. By themselves, atoms are independent, but when combined together to form compounds, they are now inexorably linked to said compound. This doesn't mean that they cease movement altogether, as they are still vibrating and bouncing, but their close proximity to the other atoms of the compound prevents them from flying around, and gives the illusion of a stable object. Now that we have an overall idea of the Epicurean atomist theory, this is also a good time to continue where we left off regarding epistemology. Since Epicurus was arguing that truth is derived from our senses, how do atoms play a role in this regard? When an individual senses something, there is an interaction between the stream of atoms of the observed object and the sensory organ that is doing the sensing that transmits the qualities of said object. The eye receives the distant atoms of a nearby brown tree, while the tongue is directly interacting with the sweet atoms of grapes. Therefore, according to Epicurus, sensation is the first criterion of truth, because all sensations are inherently derived from the physical presence of moving atoms, and so we can conclude that all sensations must be true given the universe's requirements for physical form to cause any change. 
This is a surprising claim, and a very valid point can be brought up. If all sensations are true, how can there exist contradictions between people about observations and judgments of things? Mistakes occur all the time in recalling events or describing objects. But for the Epicureans, it's not the observation that matters, it's the interpretation. The sensory organ cannot be blamed for the failures of the mind, and lapses in judgment can be attributed rather than the observation itself. Sensations are also relative, which is not the same as subjective. For example, an alarm clock which measures out at about 80 decibels might be loud, but not as noisy as a 150 decibel fighter jet. But you wouldn't necessarily say that an alarm clock isn't loud simply because there are things louder than it. The second criterion of truth is what is called prolepsis, literally translated as to grasp, but commonly shorthanded as preconception. The theory of learning in the eyes of Socrates and Plato was one of recollection, as we are allegedly born with knowledge that we must rediscover through logical deduction, seen in the Mino dialogue where Socrates helps an uneducated slave infer the laws of geometry. But for Epicurus, developing a preconception requires previous experience, which is sensation and searching for empirical evidence. When the preconception emerges, they give us archetypes, such as goodness, what a human being is, or any number of ideas and concepts that are generated by our sensations and observations. The third criterion is feeling, and, as to be expected, it is focused on pleasure and pain. By dwelling on our feeling, we are able to determine which actions we should and should not perform, i.e., seek what is pleasurable and avoid things which are painful, and this provides us with the knowledge of how to live the best life. These three are the original criteria laid out by Epicurus, but a fourth one was added by later Epicureans, presentation and opinion. Opinion is something that awaits confirmation, whereas presentation is clear fact and always true, and this distinction is to allow for the idea that all sensations are true, despite mistaken judgments. If I am standing in front of a large rock and hear the noise of a barking dog on the other side, my opinion is that there must be a dog around the rock, based upon my past experiences and preconceptions of dogs. Because I like animals and seeing one would bring me happiness, I decide to go around the rock and discover it wasn't a dog, but an audio recording of one. This demonstrates that my mind's interpretation is to blame, not that my hearing was faulty nor was my sensation invalid. Lucretius also includes a rather interesting rationale behind why humans can visualize fantastical and made-up creatures such as centaurs, blaming it on the confluence of atoms of humans and horses that our mind misinterprets as some sort of chimera, much like a mirage in the hot desert that tricks our mind with the image of water. With this last point, I think this is a solid place to end the discussion of epistemology and turn to some of the most controversial elements of Epicurean philosophy on death and the nature of the divine. to talk about death, we need to talk about the mind. Now, to clarify, mind is a translation of the word psyche, which itself is very ambiguous and depends on the context, either emphasizing the spirit or soul, or the seat of reason in a human being. Unlike his platonic counterparts, Epicurus argued that the psyche of a person was corporeal, that it was part of the human body, and was itself a body of atoms. It had to be physical, 
Otherwise, how could it have an effect on movement, on reason, or the act of eating? Lucretius observes that, like the body, the psyche is subject to growth and decay, like the development of a child or the possible senility brought on by old age. Because the mind is part of the body, this also means that it is subject to mortality, and the atoms that compose the psyche are dispersed back into the universe as soon as we die, meaning that our souls cease to exist. This is a huge difference compared to the beliefs of Plato, who argued for the immortality of the soul, and therefore its existence prior to the body. A rebuttal from Lucretius casts doubt on this idea in two ways. The first asking, if the mind or soul exists prior to the body, why don't we have memories of past lives? And the second, if we somehow lose our previous memories anyways prior to entering a new body, isn't that the functionally the same as dying? Clearly modeled after the ship of Theseus question. Okay, say you've convinced me that we cease to exist upon our deaths. How is that supposed to make me less anxious and feel better? Epicurus is fully aware of the fear that such a revelation can bring to a person, and puts forth his answer, quote, Death is nothing to us, for all good and bad consists in sense experience, and death is the privation of sense experience. A correct knowledge of the fact that death is nothing to us makes the mortality of life a matter of contentment, not by adding a limitless time to life, but by removing the longing for immortality, end quote. What the Epicurean philosophy argues is that when we are alive and able to experience sensation, death is not present. And when we do die, we don't experience anything anyways, since we are no longer there. This is why death itself is not painful to us. And although the act of dying may often be painful, we fear the pain of dying rather than the state of expiration. A counterpoint though, could it be argued that death itself is bad if it deprives us the pleasure of living? According to Lucretius, it could, but only if there was something to miss those pleasures in the first place. Again, we're dead, and since we don't feel anything, there is no sense of loss. But what about the existential dread of knowing we will eventually die and cease to exist? Again, Lucretius points out that generally, we don't experience any fear thinking about the vast amount of time that occurred prior to our births, so why should the time after we expire affect us any differently? This line of thinking may be of little comfort to many of you listeners, but Epicurus and his followers were certainly capable of empathizing with the emotional needs of your average person. The pain of losing someone we care about, even if death is theoretically nothing to us, is a completely normal and acceptable feeling to have. Epicurus stresses that the pleasures of friendship and close companions, which is so essential to the lifestyle of the garden and learning experience, allows us to go through the grieving process and turn our brief moment of pain and distress into a source of pleasure by focusing on the good memories of our deceased loved ones. The Epicureans' remembrance of Epicurus's life with festivals is a testament for their desire to celebrate life rather than fixate on death. With death out of the way, let's move to the nature of the divine, or lack thereof. It is a common misconception to label Epicurus an atheist, done by both his detractors and his supporters. He never explicitly denied the existence of the gods, but his conception of them was very unusual for the time. We have to rely on the Roman orator Cicero for this interpretation, as much of these writings have been lost. But the general consensus of the Epicureans was that the gods did exist, but were removed from the affairs of the world. Let me explain further. There are a number of logical problems with the nature of the gods. First, 
If the gods are immortal, perfect, and blessed, i.e. happy beings, why do they experience emotions like jealousy, rage, or lust, like in virtually every tale in the Greek mythology? Second, we cannot observe the gods by any extent, though we certainly have the preconception of the gods as existing in a human-like form, so it makes their existence challenging to prove or disprove. One of the most famous arguments of the nature of divine is how the Epicureans address the problem of evil. If God wishes to prevent evils, but cannot, he is weak and therefore cannot exist according to the definition of a perfect being. If God can prevent evil, but chooses not, he is evil, which is impossible for a perfect happy being. If God can't prevent evil, but doesn't want to, he is both weak and evil, making it doubly impossible. If God can prevent evil and wants to, then why does evil still exist? Based on this assumption, the Epicureans believe that the gods do not intervene in the affairs of the cosmos to any extent. If they are perfect beings living out in an idealized state, trying to deal with the evils of humanity would be the antithesis to their pleasure, and thus they don't bother with us. Ultimately, the Epicureans want us not to deny the existence of the gods, but rather to live without fear of their wrath. So, if there is nothing to fear from neither death nor the gods, why do we bother to live an ethical life to begin with? Living an ethical life meant that we must pursue the highest good, and the highest good is pleasure and the absence of pain. Rather than arguing for the overindulgence of personal vices, Epicurus pushes for moderation because of the negative consequences that such a lifestyle would bring on one's physical and mental health. Quote, it is not drinking bouts and continuous partying and enjoying boys and women, or consuming fish and the other dainties of an extravagant table, which produce the pleasant life, but sober calculation which searches out the reasons for every choice and avoidance, and drives out the opinions which are the source of the greatest turmoil for men's souls. End quote. When we have eliminated pain and turmoil and are experiencing a state of pleasure, we actually transcend to the feeling of joy, which is different from mere pleasure. This is something that is very appealing to all human beings, if we believe that the highest good is pleasure. And so, it should be natural that we try to ascribe to those beliefs by performing philosophy. In a sense, it might seem like a valid argument that the pursuit of hedonism is an inherently selfish desire, and would lead to the detriment of society as a whole. But the Epicurean belief system stresses the importance of bonding and companionship, that by performing acts of goodness and kindness, we are not only able to benefit others, but ourselves as well, producing the joy that we so crave. The legacy of Epicurus was understandably complicated, and its initial impression often did not attract many to the flock compared to its rival school of Stoicism, especially during the Roman Empire. The more controversial elements of Epicurus's teachings attracted criticism from both Greco-Roman authors and later thinkers, especially in monotheistic religions like Christianity and Judaism. The biographer Plutarch, who was also something of a strict Platonist, openly decried the Epicureans in a number of works, including one with the rather blunt title, That One Cannot Live Happily Following Epicurus. Despite a degree of admiration of figures like Lucretius, the philosophically-minded Cicero was clearly skeptical of the school, and used the term garden as a shorthand for excess and vice. The accusations of atheism and the mortality of the soul placed Epicurus in the sixth circle of Dante's Inferno, and the name Epicurus became the Hebrew term apikoros, meaning heretic or non-believer. The 5th century Christian thinker St. Augustine rejected Epicurus on the grounds of materialism of the soul, 
and other early Christian writers sometimes use Epicurean as a direct insult or accusation. However, Epicurean schools survived the destruction of the garden by Sulla in 86 BC, and there were supporters for centuries afterwards. The stoically inclined Seneca respected Epicurean ideals and tried to reconcile them with his beliefs as often as he could, and even Augustine found Epicurus's principles to be admirable, and was one of the schools he delved into following his abandonment of Manichaeism. It underwent a rebirth during the Renaissance, thanks to the recovery of a manuscript of Lucretius's poem in the 15th century, and was used as part of an effort to challenge the dominant Aristotelian conception of the universe. Thinkers of the Enlightenment and early modern periods like Karl Marx, Thomas Jefferson, and the utilitarian philosophers all cited Epicurean teachings as major influences, with Thomas Jefferson commenting, quote, I too am an Epicurean. I consider the genuine, not imputed doctrines of Epicurus as containing everything rational in moral philosophy which Greece and Rome have left us, end quote. And with that, I believe we can end our discussion of Epicurus. If you want to read more about Epicureanism, an excellent introductory work I used is Tim O'Keefe's Epicureanism, part of the Ancient Philosophy series. And if you want something very comprehensive, there's always the Cambridge Companion to Epicureanism. Both of these and the rest of my sources will be included in the show notes for this episode, which can be found by clicking the link in the podcast description or heading to www. HellenisticAgePodcast.wordpress.com. I hope you managed to get a good idea of what Epicureanism is all about, and I want to openly state that my goal for this episode was not to write a polemic against the critics of Epicurus, nor suggest that I consider the Epicurean school to be infallible truth. I wanted to frame the structure of the Epicurean doctrine as if I were in their sandals arguing their point of view, and I plan to do the same with the other schools as well. So, this is not me trying to advocate that you should believe or disbelieve in either direction. All of you listeners are amazingly kind and understanding as a whole, and it may be silly to worry about backlash coming from long-extinct philosophical movements, but it was something I was concerned about and just wanted to get out of the way. If this is your first time listening to the show, consider subscribing to the podcast and leaving a review on the platform of your choice, or follow me on any of my social media accounts, including Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram for show updates and interesting posts. In the next episode, we're going to be switching from the Epicureans to the Stoics. So, until next time, you've been listening to the Hellenistic Age Podcast. <laughs>